You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all of the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. The word of the Lord. Almighty Father, we thank you that we can come confidently into your presence because of Jesus, that he has come and that we trust him And now we delight to sit under your word for us. So, Father, we pray that you would do a great work in your people. In Christ's name, amen. Good evening. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. I haven't met you yet. I'd love to after the service. Just come on up and I'd love to shake your hand and get to know you a little bit. Uh, I know that all of our experiences as kids were different. Uh, but Christmas time was my absolute favorite time of the year, perhaps because my birthday is also in this month, so it kind of all went together. Uh, but every year, it was a grand story that just swirled along, and I was just there along for the ride. And just like any good story, there were characters, right? There was uh, my sisters, my mom, and my dad, grandparents, aunts and uncles, cousins, you know, Santa, Rudolph, the Grinch, uh, Bob Cratchit, as played by Kermit the Frog, Uh, you know, Kevin McAllister and the Wet Bandits, and of course, Jesus maybe tacked on at the end. But then there was a setting. There was Christmas Eve at my grandparents' house, presents around the tree, taking your picture at the mall. The mall. I kind of miss that a little bit. Not going to the mall, especially on Christmas time, but there was a history of past Christmases and experiences. There was the future suspense and the seemingly never-ending waiting and waiting and waiting, the and then the climax and resolution of Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, all these elements that are necessary for a good story. And again, like Clint said this year, uh, we'd, be a, we want, we'd like to be a little bit more intentional now this year in this Advent season of slowing down, of causing us to wait 
and be brought into this story, this Christmas story. Uh, not just the presents and uh, the, the Christmas specials that we watch. Uh, all of those are fine and good and great and we should do those things too. But to actually cause us to force us to not uh, move straight from Thanksgiving and straight to, he is here, uh, Jesus is here, but actually uh, force ourselves to slow down, to wait, to long for, to expect his coming, which is what we're going to think about tonight, this evening, this first of these four Sundays, uh, the, just the idea of hope, of expectation, of waiting, and of hope. And over the next three weeks, we'll consider love, joy, and peace. Now, hope is always a future-oriented term. That's why, as a kid, Christmas is so magical and great, right? Uh, it was absolutely, it was certainly coming. And it forced me to long for that day more than the day that I was presently in. December 24th, December 25th was undoubtedly going to be better than, say, like December 12th or something. Lame old December 12th. Uh, but isn't that true? Like, Christmas Eve couldn't come fast enough for us when we were kids. Kids, it couldn't come fast enough, right? I know my kids still have this sense of expectation for Christmas, but my guess is, uh, just talking with you, some of you, this week, and just understanding just the way that we age, uh, some of this longing and expectation just seems to just wane a bit as we grow up, as we get a little bit older. And in chatting with several of you this week, Christmas time itself isn't just times of gumdrops and candy canes, but it's actually a time of pain, a time of remembering lost relationships, uh, broken relationships, and Christmas just inevitably, inevitably brings up some of that past hurt, that past memories, that past pain. Well, I'm not going to just try to drum up a sense of Christmas magic for us this evening uh, so that you can live with the Christmas spirit all year round, like in a terribly overly simplistic Muppet Christmas Carol time of wherever you find joy, it feels like Christmas kind of way or something. But what I am going to try to do is try to restore a sense of longing, restore a sense of expectation and of hope. And as we build in hope for Christmas, Jesus' first advent, his first coming, it's our expectation that God will create in us a greater sense of longing and expectation for Jesus' second advent, his second coming. So we're going to look at one of the Christmas stories with which we're most familiar, the, the Magi, the wise men, and try to contrast their true hope with the false sense of hope that King Herod had. So we'll first look at an uncertain wish of King Herod and then a certain hope of the Magi. So first, an uncertain wish. Let's first read together those first six verses of Matthew 2 that Dave read. If you've got your Bibles, hope you're already there in Matthew 2, but it's the first book of the New Testament in that second chapter. Verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Now, before we get to the Magi, let's look a little bit at Herod. 
Herod's a pretty complex and actually really ruthless guy. We know quite a bit about him, not just from the Bible, but from several historical texts that were written about him outside of the Bible. Uh, without giving a really long history lesson, I'll just tell you this. One writer says that Herod was racially Arab, religiously Jewish, culturally Greek, and politically Roman. So like I said, a complex guy. He's got a lot of stuff going on. He's not even Jewish, but he's been named king of the Jews by the Roman Senate, and he's trying to hold on so desperately to this throne that he's been given uh, that nearing the end of his life, he actually murders his wife and several sons because he thinks of them as threats to his kingdom. Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor, says, uh, he wrote this of Herod, that it's better to be Herod's pig than his son. So we're not at all surprised to find out that when the Magi come into his court asking where the baby king of the Jews is, that he's troubled or more literally stirred up. It seems as though Herod's hope is to remain king of the Jews forever or at least as long as he lives. And anything contrary to this hope is a threat. Because think about it, if you're the king and some guys roll into your throne room and ask where the king is, this is troubling, isn't it? So in reality, Herod's hope is really just wishful thinking. Yes, he's participating and making all sorts of things happen to make sure that that wish keeps being fulfilled. You know, regular stuff like killing your children, wife. Uh, but his hope, his desire is that it, this isn't actually really sustainable, is it? And this isn't actually a promise to him made by God that he would be king over God's people forever. And isn't this usually true of us, that when we, uh, we talk about or we think about hope, it's really just wishful thinking that we're talking about, isn't it? Like when we say, I really hope that it snows on Christmas Eve. Uh, or when we say, you know, things like, I hope my favorite team has a better season next year than this year. Or even things on, th things like we have more direct influence, like, I, I hope I make all A's this semester. Or, I hope I get that job promotion this year. I'm going to work really hard, so I hope that I get it. But do you see in all of those examples that the use of the word hope is actually indicating uncertainty? So, I really hope it snows on Christmas Eve is acknowledging the fact that it doesn't snow a lot here. And so, because I'm uncertain that it's going to happen, I really hope that it does. Or, my team is really bad and I really hope their season is better next year, or I really stink at calculus, and so math is hard, and so I'm probably not going to get A's, but I really hope that I do. What I want to propose to you is that the existence of uncertainty is actually totally antithetical to the idea of biblical hope. John Piper defines hope as a confident expectation and desire for something good in the future. So a confident expectation. Biblical hope isn't just wishful thinking for something good and just, you know, cross your fingers and just maybe it'll turn out. No, biblical hope not only expects that thing to happen, but it is actually confident that it will. The reason that we can be confident in something to happen is because it is God who made the promise. And because God has shown himself to be trustworthy in the past, we trust his character, and we've seen him fulfill promises in our own lives, then he's actually trustworthy to fulfill the promises that he makes. Therefore, we can have confident hope that he's actually going to do what he says he's going to do. Herod's placed his hope here in something that God has never promised, an enduring kingdom. And we're like that, aren't we? 
Isn't it the times in which that we get most frustrated with God or doubt his goodness towards us is nearly always because we're hoping him to fulfill a promise that he's actually never made to us. So we say, I hope God gives me this job or that job promotion, meaning really, I wish that God would give me this job or that promotion. And then when we don't get the job, we then get really angry and frustrated, shaking our fists to the heavens, saying, where were you? I thought you were good. Meanwhile, God is just patiently saying, Nathan, Nathan, don't you know that I care more about your joy in me rather than just your joy in the things that I can give you? Don't you know that I care more about you trusting me and being shaped more into a person who loves, worships, obeys, follows me like Christ than as you currently are? Like Herod, we hope or wish for things that are actually uncertain and then ultimately unfulfilling. Things that keep us wanting more. And like Herod, our grip can become so tight on things, our own kingdoms, that when King Jesus comes, claiming rule and authority over all parts of our life, we feel threatened. No, no, no. You're not going to be king over that part of my life. Clint shared with me a great illustration earlier this week that many, if not most of us, are, are pretty cool with Jesus like coming into the living rooms of our homes, being a hospitable uh, guest in our homes, being around uh, for some interesting conversations or something. But then there are certain rooms of our house that are locked, that he can't come into. No, 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 you're not allowed in there. You can't touch that part of my life. No, no, no. You can't touch how I spend my money. I'm threatened to protect those parts. You're not allowed into that room of my sexuality. Sundays are cool. I'm cool with acknowledging you a couple times throughout the week, Jesus, but my leisure activities are off limits. The alcohol or the drugs or the things that I put in my body, you don't have anything to say about that. That's in a locked room that you have no access to. But King Jesus comes in not just saying, No, those rooms are mine now, but actually I want to come into all of these rooms and shine light in them, to transform them, that these rooms might not only be lit, but might be a place of joy, that I come to clean out and transform all of these rooms so that the entire house, not just the living room, is a place for the living God to dwell. The Advent season should be a time for us to slow down, to examine our desires, to how we think these small desires will actually fulfill us, secure us, and save us, and then for us to see the unbelievably, infinitely more satisfying story of God becoming man. When we are swept into this story like we were more likely to be when we were kids in the Christmas story, we see our weak desires to be what they actually are, cups of sand for thirsty men and women, we're dying in a desert. The Advent season comes as a reminder that the authority that we hold over our lives are one, actually just an illusion. We actually don't have any authority over our own lives or the cosmos, right? But two, our authority is just mismanaged authority, and we're actually running things into the ground, like Herod's kingdom. So if all Herod's hope is, is just an uncertain wish for an uncertain kingdom— Well, now let's compare that to the Magi's certain hope. 
the Magi, the, the wise men, the three kings. Well, I hate to be the bearer of bad news for you and perhaps ruin the Fisher-Price nativity scene that you have on your coffee table, uh, but these guys weren't kings. Uh, there may or may not have been three of them. They probably weren't riding camels, and they most definitely weren't at the stable in Bethlehem. Welp! Uh, sorry, uh, that's a bummer, but they are still immensely important to the Christmas story which is the coming, the advent of the Messiah, the baby king. So first, a little background on the Magi. We don't know a ton, but what we do know about them is actually pretty fascinating. The Magi weren't just three guys from the East who were like super into stars. They weren't necessarily just astrologers. The ESV, the, re the translation that we're reading from, translates uh, these men as the wise men, but the Greek that this is originally written in actually says magi, and the magi are a priestly or hereditary tribe of the Medes, an entire kingdom, an entire group of people. The Medes, who are today the, they're the Kurds in Iran or Iraq, were once the world power. The Medes, along with the Persians, formed this Medo or Medo-Persian empire, and they're the ones that came in and defeated the Babylonians. We read about them in the book of Daniel. And they themselves, the Medo Persians, were then conquered later by the Greeks under Alexander the Great. But the Magi then continued on. So the Magi were essentially like the Levites of the Medes. They are a priestly and hereditary tribe within the Medes. Meaning you couldn't just decide that you wanted to be a Magos. Magos is like the singular of the plural Magi. You had to be born into the tribe. Like the Levites in Israel, they had immense political power within the Medo-Persian Empire. In fact, we know that no Persian king could first be crowned as king of the Medes unless one of two things first happened. Uh, he had to first master the scientific and religious discipline of the Magi, and he had to be approved and crowned by the Magi. So essentially, the Magi are the ones who control who could be king. They're kingmakers. Interesting. So how did they come to know about the coming king of Israel? How did they know about the prophecy of the star? Which I'm not going to spend any time here on the star, but if you'd like to read more, I'd recommend a book called The Great Christ Comet, Revealing the True Star of Bethlehem by Colin Nickel. Really interesting things going on. But anyway, Admittedly, the following is speculation, but it's certainly possible, and many scholars think that this is exactly what happened, how they came to know in the first place about the king of Israel. I mentioned Daniel earlier. Well, do you remember in Daniel when this mysterious hand wrote on the wall, uh, and no one could read it, no one could interpret it? Well, in Daniel 5, 11, and 12, the, king, the queen then says to the Bab then Babylonian uh, king, she says, there is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel. Many scholars are confident that these magi, magicians, magicians, this is where we get our word magic and magicians from the word magi, were these magicians, these astrologers, these magi. And so here's where the speculative filling in the gaps occurs, but that Daniel, he's appointed to basically teach the magi everything that he knows. The king puts him in charge of them. 
He teaches them everything he knows about the God of Israel, about the Old Testament scriptures. And just as there remains a remnant of true worshipers of Yahweh in the Babylonian exile, uh, there remains a remnant of true worshipers amongst the Magi. Not all of them became uh, worshipers of God, but perhaps a small remnant did. And this remnant is the group of Magi that came then searching for the Messiah many hundreds of years later. Again, admittedly, this is speculation, but it seems, as we'll see in just a moment, that these guys are actually true and genuine worshipers of Israel's God. How in the world did that come to happen? Someone taught them the scriptures. Perhaps it was Daniel. So let's look now a little uh, more carefully at the story. They ride into Jerusalem. We don't know how many of them. We assume that there are three because they come bearing three gifts. But it could have been two magi bearing three gifts. It could have been three magi bearing three gifts. It could have been 300 of them bearing three gifts. We're actually not told. Uh, But they come in, and uh, these guys are still really politically powerful, even still, even after the defeat of the Medo-Persian Empire. They probably ride in on these majestic Persian white horses with a detail of cracked Persian Uh, bodyguards as their soldiers coming with them. Everyone in Jerusalem probably would have known who they were. It was a big deal when these magi from the east are riding in, and certainly Herod would have known. So this gives us a little bit more context for our scene in chapter 2, verse 1. Let's read these these first few verses again and compare the uncertain wish of Herod with the certain hope of the magi. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, or magi, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And then the chief priests then tell of this prophecy about Bethlehem. Now, there are just so many things to look through uh, in this passage, but remember, we're looking at this through the lens of hope. So, I want us to see the difference between the reaction of Herod and the reaction of the Magi. The Magi had a confident expectation that God would actually do what he said he was going to do, that he would fulfill his promises to Israel, that he would send the Messiah to deliver his people. It will happen without a doubt, for sure. And they knew that they were outsiders. They were ceremonially unclean Gentiles without access to the temple. But since they were confident that the Messiah had been born, they were coming, probably expecting to find the insiders, Israel, already worshiping him. So it's almost as if they're saying, for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him along with you. They embarked in this extremely costly and dangerous journey across the desert to find the Messiah. And their only hope was, as Gentiles, to now be counted amongst the people of God and to be counted under his rule, the king, the king's rule. They are here entering into the hope of humanity since Genesis 3. To enter under the rule of the promised snake crusher. They're entering into the hope of Israel, the one to come, the one who would receive the tribute of the nations that was promised, as we saw in Genesis, to to Judah, the tribe of Judah in Genesis 49. 
They are entering into the hope of Moses, the one to come who would be greater than him in leading and teaching the people. They're entering into the hope of the prophets who longed for the one to come who would bring the forgiveness of sins, who would give a new heart and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They're entering into the hope of the eternal and royal throne of David. So here they are, here to worship Israel's king. Only Israel isn't there to worship. The chief priests and the scribes know that he is to be born in Bethlehem, but evidently they aren't interested in going to find him there. Or they were oblivious that he had actually come. Their knowledge of the scriptures isn't causing them to draw near to God in worship. Their knowledge of the scriptures is actually keeping them far from God. But while the priests and scribes aren't interested in the greatest moment in human history, Herod is. In order to keep his fanciful dream empire going, he must eliminate any threat. So he tries to trick them into finding the baby and then telling him where Jesus is. But they see through his deceit. Right? They aren't called wise men for nothing. Am I right? And look what happens when they find him in verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So since in verse 1 we read after Jesus was born in Bethlehem and they find the family later in a house and not a stable, it's safe to assume that some time has now passed uh, since Jesus' the night of his birth when the angels were announcing to the shepherds that he was born. This is probably also why Herod has all children under the age of two uh, killed. Probably some time has passed before they get to uh, Jesus' family. But look at this, though. When they, when they saw the star, verse 10, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. This is a quadruple way of saying that they rejoiced, right? It would have been a lot to say that they rejoiced. More to say that they rejoiced with joy. More to say that they rejoiced with great joy. But even more, Matthew tells us, to say that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. He's going over the top here and explaining how joyful they were. They were on the way to the Messiah, Israel's king, the deliverer, the king of heaven, now being made man. Can you imagine? They were almost there. And it's almost as if Matthew inserted this little sentence to say that true worship is not just ascribing authority and majesty and dignity to Christ and true hope isn't just about looking forward to something. It's about worshiping joyfully. Joyfully expecting that which you desire. So when asked the question, where's the king? Herod felt threatened. He grasped after his own kingdom even more defensively. But when they asked themselves, where's the king? The magi respond with joy. Not just saying theological truths about the king, but coming now with joy and coming with costly gifts, which come after a costly journey. They respond with their entire lives. All of the rooms of their lives are now laid open bare to Christ, the king. So this is a question for us. Just this, this short little phrase describing their emotions 
Does the coming of Jesus, his coming, his making his kingdom known in this world and in our lives, his coming and rescuing you from sin and death, does this cause you to respond exceedingly with great joy? Not begrudgingly opening, opening these, unlock, or these locked doors in our lives like, I guess if you're the king, I have to let you in. But yes, these rooms are yours. Take them. Come in. Transform them. I want all of it. As we sang earlier, I want to know you and then know you more. I want you to know me and then know me more. All of it. If the worship of Christ is not out of exceeding joy, I think a question for us ought to be, why not? Why not? Is it possible that we're not actually here to worship him for who he is and what he's done, but for him to just keep giving us some benefits, keep dispensing the the sweet little Pez candies for us, keep them coming. As long as you make me happy, then I'll keep coming to you to grant us wishes like a genie, basically for us to keep approaching God like Herod. Just keep giving me what I want. But the kingmakers are here and they're falling down and they're worshiping a baby. And why? Because this king is entirely different than any king that has ever lived on earth. This king says that he'll lay down his life for his people. The shepherd will die for his sheep. Here's a shepherd king whose beginning is in a feeding trough where unclean animals will come and eat. And his end will be on a Roman cross. This this is a king who can be trusted, who in humility has come to save us. And I I love the, the lyrics from Chris Rice where he writes, Fragile finger sent to heal us. Tender brow prepared for thorn. Tiny heart whose blood will save us. Unto us is born. This tender brow on this baby This newborn baby, the forehead is so soft, so delicate, like smells like a baby, right? There's a couple of these month-old babies out there right now, and you just hold them, they're sweet, precious, delicate. Well, that forehead will have gruesome one-inch thorns pressed into it. And he'll take those thorns willingly on his head as he willingly takes our sin on his head. And the blood from this tiny heart, a little bitty heart that the baby Jesus has pumping into him. You could put your head up, your ear up to this baby's chest and hear this heartbeat. That same heartbeat will pump its blood out into the holes in his head and out into the holes in his hands and to his feet until it will finally stop pumping and pour itself out into the hole in his side. And he will do this, this tiny heart, which will then pour itself out for us, he will do so with great joy for us to save his people. He'll spill his blood willingly to give us his righteousness. Amazing. This baby, whom these unclean Gentiles are coming to worship, rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. Here's the one who fulfills our greatest longings, who fulfills our greatest desires. In his first advent, this coming, Jesus comes to make us right with God and establish this small little beachhead for the invasion of the kingdom of heaven into the kingdom of earth. In his second advent, his second coming, 
Jesus is going to win the war once and for all for eternity. He will right every wrong. He will bring justice to every injustice. He'll make all things new and reign victoriously forever as our king. So just as when we were kids, we would rather it be Christmas Eve than December 12th. We should long for the day of Christ's second advent. There's a sense as Christians we should be discontent, a righteous discontentment. That is, we should long for that day, the second advent of Christ, his coming more than today. So being content and rejoicing for what God has given us today, but longing for that day. That's not to say that we don't steward this day well, right? In fact, because we not only expect Jesus to return, but we're confident that he will fulfill his promise each day, this day, tomorrow, the day after that, and every day until his coming brings more light of his coming. It's building an expectation, building and waiting. For every day that comes, we're one day closer. And that's a reality. Early Christians used the word maranatha. It's an Aramaic word. Uh, and they would use this word to greet each other. But it's an, it's an odd word to use to greet someone because the word literally means come Lord Jesus. So it's like if I would see you on the street and say, Maranatha, hey man, like come Lord Jesus. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> like that's a strange thing to say, but this is how early Christians would greet and then say goodbye to each other. Maranatha. Early Christians experienced such suffering, persecution, that they naturally longed for the day of his return. Naturally longed for the kingdom of Christ in its eternity, more than the day that they presently lived in. I'm just so comfortable in my house with a TV that streams Netflix that often I'm pretty content in the here. And not all that, I don't have that much longing for the then because things can be so easy now. For many of you, this isn't the case. This is why God uses suffering and pain for our good to create in us a longing, a righteous discontentment for the present so that we hope more greatly for the future, a longing more for the then than the now. And Advent forces us to wrestle with this question. What do I long for? What do I hope for? Is it the coming of Christ and his kingdom like the Magi or like Herod? Is my greatest longing, is, is my greatest hope just my own kingdom, my own small desires that God has actually never promised? Do you long for Jesus to come? When you see suffering in the world, when you turn on the news for like five seconds and that's all it takes to see the reality of the world that we live in today, does it cause you to think and to pray, come Lord Jesus? When you are confronted with the reality of your own flesh, of your sin, and again and again you've chosen yourself over Christ, is your first reaction and inclination, come Lord Jesus, who will save me from this body of death? Only Christ. If the answer to that is not, and, and admittedly, this is not the case, I'm sure, for all of us in every situation of our life. We want to be growing in this, of our prayer becoming more and more regularly each day, come Lord Jesus. But we hope, and I'm confident, that these next 22 days or so are God's great gift to us. That we wait with building expectation and certain hope that December 25th is coming. Christmas Day is coming. His first 
coming is here, and now we wait for his second coming. I just read this morning, one guy said that we gather here on, a, on any Advent Sunday, but really any Sunday, as God's people to say, he came as he promised that he would. And we gather here to say, he will come as he promised he will. He will come. He will. He has and he will. This ought to provide such meaning for these next few days as we wait for Christmas and then beyond. We don't forget the Advent season on December 26th. We hope that these next three or four weeks or so have built in this longing and expectation for every day for the rest of our life until he comes. Let's pray to that end. Lord Jesus, we do confidently await with hope your appearing in the clouds. You're appearing to make all things new. We know that you have first come in your first coming to do business and to do battle with and to claim victory over the power of sin. The power of sin in our lives, the power of sin in this world. King Jesus, you are victorious in your death and your resurrection. But we now confidently await with hope your second coming when you come to not only uh, claim victory to do business with and to do battle with the reality of sin, but to banish it, to vanquish it forever. Not only just the power of sin, but its presence gone forever. Every inkling in every thought of rebellion will be no more. There will only be love. There will only be exceeding, rejoicing worship with great joy. Lord Jesus, we as your people, we want to more and more uh, not just begrudgingly unlock these doors in the homes of our lives, but welcome you. Might you in these next few weeks begin to transform and to bring light and to cause the homes of our lives to be a place that is filled with joy, filled with love, filled with hope, filled with peace. Father, we pray for those who have not experienced this hope that we have, the hope of your second coming, the hope of the resurrection. Father, we pray these next few weeks might be a time of first hope. They might find life in your first coming and then confidently await along with us with great hope and with exceeding joy your second coming. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.